1: It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, September 30th, 2013. I don't even think we're going to be easing into this week. Going to be engaging in a little bit of a thought experiment here today. Kind of on one of my thinking out loud episodes. I'll explain in a minute. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically. Help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We slow down, stop, and open up our Bibles and check to see if what we're being taught is actually what God's Word says when we read it in context, when we are rightly understanding it, or if what we're being fed is a bunch of verses ripped out of context to create the false impression that the Bible teaches a particular theology. Case and point, yeah. You know, this, <clears throat> how do I set this up today? The case and point is this. Today, we're, I'm going to engage in a little bit of a thought experiment with one exception. Okay. And uh, let me let me put it this way: um, There's something that's grinding in my brain, and I'm going to be soliciting your feedback. Of course, I always solicit your feedback, but I'd like you to think along with me today, um, just so you know. The purpose of the um, the William Tapley segment today. It's more or less going to be something of comedic relief, if you would. Um, so let's talk about what we're going to be doing today. We're going to have uh, we're, we've got a an update from William Tapley, the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and co-prophet of the End Times. And uh, sometimes I feel like we put him in here uh, because he, he provides a little bit of a chuckle, which in in a, in some cases helps us from, you know, it keeps us from losing our minds. I think the humor is an important thing from time to time, and sometimes I think William Tapley just does a fantastic job of providing us with a little bit of comedic relief. And, uh, you know, he's one of these guys that, he, because he takes himself seriously and the things that he says are so preposterous, you know, it's easy to not. You know, it's easy to see where the problem is, and unfortunately, there's a lot of people who engage in the same kind of nonsense that William Tapley does. But William Tapley doesn't have their chariz- charisma or their chops, and so in a sense, he provides a little bit of comedic relief. But uh, we're going to be listening to a portion of a video where he's claiming you know, that there's prophetic significance in the uh, latest James Bond movie, which I think came out what a year ago. Uh, The name of the movie is Skyfall, and apparently there's uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin uh, is supposedly (laughs) prophesied in the movie Skyfall, which kind (laughs) of begs the question. Um, if, If Putin is prophesied in Skyfall, how is that possible since Putin came on the scene long before the movie Skyfall came on the scene? Yeah, it's just you just want. Sometimes you ask the questions, and you know the answers. Just anyway, they leave you just scratching your head. But then after we're done with uh, William Tapley, and you know, kind of ease into today's program segment, we're going to change directions. We're going to switch gears. We're going to uh, we're going to do kind of a two part thought experiment, if you would. And uh, we're going to head up to Wooddale Church up in the Twin Cities area, and we're going to listen to a portion of a sermon preached by a guy by the name of Dale Hummel. I think he's the uh, the, the gentleman who has succeeded uh, Leif Anderson up there at that uh, congregation. And, um, of course, Leif is uh, one of the major uh, guys on the ground floor of the whole seeker-driven, purpose-driven movement. And we're going to be listening to a portion of his of a sermon that he preached about... Having personal dreams and visions for your life. Now, if you've listened to this program for any length of time, then you know that uh, you know, we're, we're constantly going after the false teaching and Bible twisting in uh, the purpose-driven movement. And there's a false theology that's associated with this, and sometimes it, you know, you can see it really clearly. And I, 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 and what I want to do today is kind of, I want you to see what I'm seeing, and then get your feedback because I'm trying to wrap my head around this. Uh, not in the sense that I don't understand it; I do understand it. But the, my question is, how do we get people to see? That this is not what the Bible teaches. I mean, yeah, I, I go after this constantly, but I, I want you to think along with me today and just think about the, you know, the, the setting, that, if you would, of this entire seeker-driven movement. And, um, I, you know, when – in theology we talk about – in fact, let me kind of give you some of the tools that we work with in uh, – you know, when you're working with theology and you're, ex- and you're examining a different theology and you're doing comparative theology, if you would. One of the things you want to look for is what are called the material and formal principles of the theology, Okay. Um, material principle um, has to do with you know, what would be the central core doctrine. Formal principle has to do with sources of authority. So uh, in Mormonism, okay, which is not Christianity, it isn't Christian, it's a flat-out heresy and it will t- send you to hell – Um, But in Mormonism, the material principle would be uh, the deification of man. You know, man can become a god. That's the the whole goal, central doctrine, everything revolves around that center. And then their formal principle would be that uh, their sources of spiritual authority would then be uh, the Bible, in so far as it's correctly translated uh, via the King James Version, uh, Doctrine and Covenants, the Book of Mormon, Pearl of Great Price, and the Living Prophets uh, out there in Salt Lake City, those would all, you know, comprise their, you know, what their formal principle together, bundled together. That, you know, that's where I think authoritative. Uh, Revelation comes from it's those multiple sources. Okay, in Calvinism, you could talk about the the uh, the material principle being the sovereignty of God, and um and then they would say sola scriptura. Although as a Lutheran on the outside, I would say it's a little bit more than sola scriptura. I would even say that you could probably make the case that in Calvinism, uh, it's uh, it's not truly in the strictest sense sola scriptura. It's sola scriptura and a kind of a sanctified reason, if you would. So. There's, uh, you know, this this is just my observation of, uh, you know, Calvinists, on, you know, and sitting there going, no, oh, I think there's there may be a little bit more to it than that, um, and uh, you know, within the uh, within confessional Lutheranism, uh, the material principle would be justification by grace alone through faith alone, um, and the uh, and the material principle of sola scriptura, or formal principle of sola scriptura, you, you get what I'm saying, but when we look now at the seeker driven movement there is this thing that I'm wondering if it's sitting at the center of their theology because everything seems to gravitationally spin around that thing. And this, it's this idea that God has some hidden vision, dream, purpose for your life. Um, You know, it's, and i i you know it it it's this weird thing because obviously this is you know nowhere in scripture does is this doctrine laid out clearly but i i'm beginning to wonder if the center of gravity of this whole secret driven movement isn't this false notion that that god has a secret adventurous super big god sized dream vision for your life and it's all about discovering and finding that thing Um, you know, through God communicating to you directly, um, you know, life experiences or or whatever. But uh, I'm beginning to wonder if that's not really the center of this particular theology. And if that's the case, I think, you know, maybe the best way to pick this thing apart would be to focus on the fact that uh, that's not the center, uh, that's not the center of Christian sanctification, nor is it the center of Christian theology. But Anyway, so we'll exp- we'll do a, we're going we have three segments that'll kind of work together along those lines. Uh, first is this um, uh, we'll listen to a portion of a sermon from Wooddale Church. Um, then we'll take a break, and when we come back, we have a Stephen Furtick update. We'll listen to a, a recent Stephen Furtick sermon called "More Likes," and we won't listen to the whole thing, but you know I, you can see pieces of this theology working in you know in Stephen Furtick's Narsa Jesus of uh, the story of Jesus' uh, temptation by the devil in the wilderness. It's absolutely fascinatingly bad that he's he's engaging in narcissistic eisegesis in telling the story about uh, Jesus being tempted by the devil. And again, I think this is just the core center of their theology, and it's a bad uh, center at that. Um, And then in in hour number two, we're going to be going to the orchard up in uh, Aurora, Illinois, and listening to Scott Hodge literally preach a sermon on a documentary about a sushi chef in a Tokyo subway station, and the name of the documentary is Hero uh, D- Dreams of Sushi. <laughs> He's just, I mean, <laughs> yeah, you, as I was listening to it, I was thinking to myself, so this is what a sermon sounds like when a pastor's completely given up any pretense of actually engaging in any biblical uh, preaching it's just, <laughs> just yeah. anyway but i think all of these things fit together but they fit together only if you have a theology where at the dead center of this thing is like kind of a black hole you know this black hole of this invisible purpose thing that you're supposed to discover for yourself in your life and uh so yeah just you know think of it this way today's program I'm i'm inviting you to think along with me so uh, we've got, uh, well, a, a lot of ground to cover. And uh, since we're going to begin with a uh, William Tapley, 30 of the Apocalypse, and Co-Prophet of the End Times update, well, I need to do this. of the world as we know it it's the end of the world as we know it it's the end of the world as we know it and
2: i feel fine
1: boom boom there you go that's our third eagle of the apocalypse co-profit of the end times update music and you know come to think of it you know since we're kind of like talking about the idea of being purpose-driven i think that um, William Tapley, it, one could argue that William Tapley is one of these guys who's a victim of this type of theology. He's discovered his secret purpose in life and his secret purpose in vision, vision that God uniquely crafted him for is to find <laughs> absurd prophetic insights in the most, well, dubious of places and uh, sources. So without any further ado... Here, here's the purpose-driven William Tapley to dis- tell us about the prophecy in the James Bond movie Skyfall regarding Vladimir Putin. Listen in.
0: Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the third eagle of the apocalypse and the co-prophet of the end times. Several uh, months ago, when the movie Skyfall first came out, quite a few of my subscribers asked me if I thought it was prophetic. And, although I doubt if the movie producers realized it, yes, the movie is prophetic. Now, when I say that, I don't mean the movie itself gives new prophecy, but rather, the storyline follows Bible prophecy. And let me explain. First of all, the actor who plays James Bond looks an awful lot like Vladimir Putin. He,
1: He does? Um, I've never noticed that. No, I don't think they do.
0: Who is found in the Bible as the last king of the north. Now, you might say that's just an accident, but I doubt it. Vladimir Putin is a very macho public figure. For example, the movie producers would never pick someone who looks like David Cameron or Tony Blair to play James Bond. Yeah,
1: that would be a complete downer. I mean, <laughs>
0: Secondly, the lyrics to the title song have a double meaning. They could be prophetic of the end times. It starts out, this is the end. Hold your breath and count to ten. Feel the earth move. And then feel my heart burst again. That is all very violent. Ten times imagery. It could come right out of the book of Revelation. And the singer Adele goes on, Let the sky fall, when it crumbles. Now that sounds like nuclear warfare to me. And the lyrics of the song continue talking about when worlds collide, and days are dark, you can have my number, you can have my name. That could refer to, of course, the Mark of the Beast.
1: Yeah, um, it, it can refer to a lot of things. Why does it have to refer to the mark of the beast? Again, I, you know, I, you know, I'm convinced uh, William Tapley is experiencing uh, the purpose-driven life. His purpose was to find completely nonsensical things in the most dubious of sources when it comes to eschatological prophecies and things like that.
0: But I think even more interesting is that the hero of the movie, James Bond, allows three innocent people to die. And I believe that this is very reflective of Bible prophecy about the bear in Daniel. Uh, what? First of all, James Bond allows a businessman to be shot through an office window by the assassin. And you say, well, how could he stop it? Well, in a few moments later, James Bond saves himself and attacks the assassin and kills him. Secondly, the innocent girl is killed by the antagonist. Yeah. And you might say, well, how could Bond stop that? Well, a few seconds later...
1: No, that's not my question. My question is, what on earth does this have to do with Bible prophecy?
0: He does stop the situation. He takes the upper hand, and he confronts the antagonist. Why didn't he do that before the girl was killed? And at the end, of course, M, his boss is killed, whereas Bond, a few seconds later, kills the antagonist. So, could this reflect the bear in Daniel with three ribs in his mouth? In other words, the... What? <laughs> ...bear symbolizes Russia, and I suggest that James Bond, in these instances, is reflecting Putin the last king of the north. I think it's also very interesting where the antagonist asks James Bond what his game is. And he says, resurrection. Well, of course, one of the things that the seventh beast does in the book of Revelation is die and come back to life. And, of course, that's what happens to James Bond in this movie, Skyfall. Yeah, figuratively. In the book of Revelation... The seventh beast represents international communism, the beast that was and is not, is not refers to the so-called collapse of the Soviet Union. And of course, this seventh beast, after it collapses, is revived as the eighth and final beast, the one-world communist tyranny. Could James Bond, in the movie Skyfall, dying and coming back to life, reflect what happens to communism in the book of Revelation. So I'm not sure if the movie producers wanted to make a prophetic movie.
1: I'm sure that was not even close to the thing
0: that was on their mind. But it's very interesting that the whole plot revolves around Bond being killed and coming back to life, and that the lyrics of the song are about the end.
1: Yeah, again, does he not have children and grandchildren who can take his video camera away from him? (laughs) Unbelievable. Moving along. That's right, this is our Vision Casting update music, normally reserved for Andy Stanley, but I'm going to go ahead and use it today for this next segment. So sing along if you know the song.
2: Know it lies when, when I'm casting cast
1: vision. vision.
2: Ooh comes from the blue and me fluently. It's MG. My casting vision is the best of me.
1: feel like i'm the only uh, theological apologetic DJ out there <laughs> casting vision that's right that's uh, word of life fellowships Los Lobos ministry records casting vision yeah there we go all right now that's our that that's to introduce what we're gonna be doing here we're going to be listening to a portion of a sermon from Wooddale Church, up in the Twin Cities area, by a guy by the name of Dale Hummel, I think he 's the gentleman who um, he 's now taken over uh, for Leif Anderson up there and we 're going to be listening to a sermon or a portion of a sermon if you we well, 're not going to listen to the whole thing um, on new dreams for your life, new dreams, the importance of having a god sized dream or vision for your life. And you know, you listen to this, and I hear this like every single seeker driven church preaches. Sermons like this on a regular basis, and it's it's just assumed that the whole purpose of the Christian life is for you to discover some unique, hidden, God given vision, dream thing that you're supposed to accomplish in your life. And I wanted you to hear um, uh, Hummel preach about this, so that you can kind of have this fresh in your mind. We'll take a break after, th- and after that, what we'll do is we'll listen to uh, Stephen Furtick talking about the importance of holiness as he narrates the story of the temptation of Jesus from Matthew 4, and this theology is the assumed thing in his uh, sermon that is, again, it's a... Where did this come from? Is, is this just now the assumed uh, idea regarding Christian sanctification as a result of the fact that we've now had over 10 years of exposure to Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life book? I mean, what is this exactly? So without any further ado, here is Dale Hummel of uh, Woodsdale, uh, Wooddale Church up in the Twin Cities area on the importance of new dreams.
3: Yeah, he, here we go. As I think about that song, greater things have still be, to be done, I'm reminded that that requires having a God-given vision, doesn't it? And uh, as we think about that, I am reminded of a man by the name of Norman Vaughn. He was born in 1905, and he died in the year 2005. He lived 100 years. But he lived 100 amazing years. The man was an adventurer, and I just wanted to highlight a few of his many achievements, his, his many adventures. In 1928, for instance, he went with Admiral Byrd in the expedition to the Antarctic that you may be familiar with, have read about, and he was the dog handler, and he drove those dogs and that sled 1,500 miles throughout the Antarctic, collecting scientific data. Let's move ahead. He had many other adventures, but let's move ahead and get past his 70th birthday. After he turned 70, he did the Iditarod, the 1,100-mile race, six different times. Can you imagine that? After the age of 70? I mean, maybe once. So Can I ask the
1: obvious question? Is it that God is calling me to a big vision for my life? And that could possibly include racing in the Iditarod
3: after the age of 70? I hope to be dead by then. But six times you do the Iditarod? And then a few weeks before he turned 89 years of age, he and his wife went back to Antarctica and... They summited Mount Vaughn, named after him by Admiral Byrd. They summited 10,320 feet. The video of it's incredible. Here's this. Can can I just say, so what? I mean,
1: what does this have to... So God is calling me potentially to an adventurous lifestyle where I could summit a mountain named after me because of my adventuring prowess.
3: You know, that's that's not going to happen. This elderly man, almost 89 years old, standing on top of the bottom of the world. Pretty incredible. And then at the age of 96, he carries the Olympic torch. And before he dies at the age of 100, he's planning another adventure in Alaska. When I grow up, I want to be like Norman Vaughn. How about you? His motto was pretty simple. His motto in life was dream big and dare to fail. Let's say it together. Dream big, dare to fail. Now, I'm old enough to have um, grown up in
1: churches where when people would repeat back or they would engage in some kind of, uh, you know, where the pastor would say something and then the audience would say their part. Normally they were working through like psalms or something like that or you know, taking portions of Scripture. The pastor would read a portion and then the congregation would read a portion. And now we have, rather than you know, reciting the creed or working through a passage together with a congregation, now we're having the, the, a Christian congregation repeat the words, dream big and dare to fail. Um, what does this have to do with Christian sanctification? What is this?
3: Have you ever done that? You ever dreamed big dared to fail? Some of you have. Some of you have been on that adventure, that exciting journey with God. Um, okay,
1: Mr. Vaughn, uh, when he dreamed big and dared to fail, you know, we, you talked about racing the Iditarod. Did he do that with God? Um, he summited a mountain named after him in Antarctica. Was that something that God put in his heart that he would dream big about? I mean, huzzah, uh, yay! He, you know, I'm looking at stuff like that and going, um, well, the thing I'm called to do as a Christian is to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins to all nations, to make disciples. Um, I'm not called to some adventurous dream big thing, you know, like going out and climbing Mount Kilimanjaro
3: or something. I mean, why would God want me to dream that? And uh, I've seen God do uh, amazing things. Some of you have accomplished huge achievements. I'm always admirable of people who run marathons. How many marathon runners do we have in here? I just, I just, I can't do it. I don't care how inspired I get. I just, I'm amazed. I applaud you being able to. Well, on Saturday, I walked 14 miles. I mean,
1: maybe I was daring to fail, you know. It was a big dream that God laid in my
3: heart to walk so far, you know. To run a, a marathon, I just would rather go Dairy Queen and have, you know, 24 blizzards than run a marathon, all right? But I admire that and that achievement and your capacity to do that. But let me ask you this question. When's the last time God gave you a dream or God gave you a vision that you looked at and said, this isn't a dare to fail issue, this is I will fail issue?
1: Where in Scripture am I told to expect that God's going to lay some big dream or vision on my life, that, I'm, that it's going to be, oh, I'm going to fail at this
3: kind of moment? I, what are you talking about? And yet you mustered up the God-given faith, they put in your heart and you went after it, and you experienced God in an incredible way and when you look back, you were absolutely amazed what God had done now only- so
1: you experienced God in an incredible way because he put some ginormous adventurous vision on it. what if you just want to live like a normal everyday life you know you want to be a mommy or a you want to be a good husband and father, I mean what you know take your kids out and you know and work with your son on his baseball skills so you have, teach him how to throw a curveball or something or maybe a cutter um wh- why is, what's wrong with that again, what is this theology that somehow you as a Christian are supposed to expect that you're going to have some huge ginormous god sized dream vision plunked on you, and you better get busy. Figuring out, number one, figuring out what that is, and then number two, get busy mustering
3: up enough faith to believe that you can actually pull it off, you know? only were you amazed, but other people were amazed as well. When's the last time that happened in your life? The truth is, as you read the Bible, the Bible is a a chronicle of men and women whom God speaks to. and. Gives them visions and gives them dreams to accomplish by his resources. By his... So the Bible, is, listen to what he just said. The Bible is not the story of God's
1: salvation of sinful fallen humanity. No, the the Bible is basically a photo album of all of these saints who've gone before us whom God put God-sized visions in their heart and then gave them the ability to accomplish through his resources so that they can experience him more. That's not what the Bible's about. I mean, this completely guts Scripture of its salvific message and Christ being the center of it. You know, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you diligently search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have life, and yet they, they are the very Scriptures that testify about me and you refuse to come to me that you might have life. Jesus says the scriptures are about him. But the, I mean the, here we got Dale, you know, kind of perfect example of the purpose-driven, you know, theology that oh no, the Bible's really just this storybook, you know, photo album of oh let's take a look back at, you know, at, you know, Moses, God laid a big god-sized vision on his Heart And he's going to lay one on you, just like he did Moses. Nehemiah, you know, God laid a big God-sized vision on his heart, and he's going to do the same thing for you. And and then, of course, Jesus is the only one who was able to accomplish his God-sized vision sinlessly, you know. But, I mean, what a weird idea about what the Bible is and what it contains. Let me back it up so that you can hear this. There's something really screwy about all this, and my question is, Where does this come from? Because God's word doesn't teach any of this.
3: Listen in. ...of men and women whom God speaks to and gives them visions and gives them dreams to accomplish by his resources, by his capacity. That humanly speaking, if they do it on their own, it's going to fail. But as as they put their faith in God... And even with setbacks at times because of their disobedience or their unbelief, as they just get back on the horse and keep trusting God, God ends up doing incredible things in and through their lives. And they experience him in such a powerful way.
1: So if you want to have like the ultimate experience of God, you gotta first of all ask God to give you one of these God sized dreams and you know that's so huge you couldn't accomplish it. And notice there's another aspect to this. This theology, that somehow this is an instrumental part of proving the veracity of the Christian faith. You know, it's so that, you know, when somebody looks at your life and goes, oh, my goodness, how did that person accomplish that? Well, they couldn't have accomplished it without God. Therefore, oh, that means God's with them. I better become a Christian. It's, it's, it, this becomes now like a hinge point regarding evangelism. So if you don't have some huge God-sized vision dream that God's accomplished in you that you could have never accomplished on your own, um, you know, you, you don't have a very compelling story to tell people regarding Christianity. They're probably not going to want to be Christians either. You know. So this then becomes the proof. But the, see, the thing is, is that the proof that Christianity is true is not that God has accomplished some huge dream vision in your life. It's the empty tomb that Jesus rose bodily from the grave on the third day.
3: Let's listen a little bit more. I don't know about you, but that's how I want to live. I want to be on an adventure with God. I want to, I want to dream big. I want, I want to dream God's dreams. I want to be about God's vision. Because I know if I am, if we are, we are going to experience God.
1: So I'm not going to experience God unless I experience some God-sized vision? Where is any of this taught in the Bible? The answer is nowhere. The Bible doesn't teach this. And what they're doing is they're taking descriptive texts and turning them into prescriptive texts without any warrant in any of the didactic portions of Scripture for doing so. This is to miss the entire point of Scripture, the entire reason why the Bible was inspired by God—it's not a story of you know some recipe book of you know here's follow these things and you too can experience God in some when He gives you a God-sized dream or vision. This is really, really bizarre. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash piratechristian. Or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at piratechristian. Quick break. When we come back, we have a Stephen Furtick update. Um, him narrating this story of the temptation of Jesus. But again, this, is, this theology is right there in it. You know, stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back.
6: expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian Oh Damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it.
0: Uh, what?
6: You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are.
0: Uh, I I couldn't do that.
1: <clears throat> <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition.
7: Uh, nobody, uh, expects, uh, expects, no, nobody expects the, um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know, I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who our do, chief ex- weapons are? our chief weapons are, um, purpose, uh, uh, vision. Okay, and okay,
6: stop, stop that, stop that. Uh, our chief weapons are purpose, blah, 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 blah. Youth Pastor Rick, read the charges.
4: Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead?
1: Well, we're we're innocent. innocent.
6: Ha! Ha! Ha ha ha! We'll soon change your mind about that!
3: That was a great happy birthday song. Okay, Charlie, time to open up your presents.
6: All right, Grandpa. Uh, let's see what we have here. Oh, yay. I've always wanted two tin cans and a string. It's one of those communicated devicey thingies.
4: Now you can talk to your friends over long. Ow. Do not fear, nerds of the world. Never again will you have to deal with poorly made gifts and cheap knockoffs. Just tell your antiquated relatives about ThinkGeek. At ThinkGeek, you will find a vast selection of creative and quality products to tickle your every fancy. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio.
2: All
1: right, we're back. Uh, warning, Christian sanctification is not about discovering some hidden purpose that God has for your life. It's not what it's about at all. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring... Fighting for the Faith you into the world, and you can partner with us. That's right. This is a partnership. You visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. And if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to post Office. Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And, of course, right now we're in the middle of our fall bake sale to make up for the summer slump, which we always experience. And uh, we have a dip in our finances during the uh, summer months, and uh, we we try to weather it. And then... Make up for it afterwards. You know when things get really bad. So uh, you know we had a tough summer, and uh, so in order to make up for the shortfall, we're selling a T-shirt uh, this year. We've had uh, a T-shirts just like last year made by uh, Pastor Daniel Emery Price out there in Northwest Arkansas, and you can see the design there. They, there's two colors to choose from: blue and red. And you can uh, get your T-shirt by visiting piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale and uh get your uh, your 2013 pirate christian radio t-shirt it's a great way to support us as well and let me thank you for your support we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it moving along that's right it's a stephen furtick update
2: You'd be their mentor and you're so vain You probably think the Bible's about you You're so vain Bet you think the Bible's about you Don't you, don't you Fool me several years ago When I was just a baby sheep So vain. you probably think the Bible's about you. You're so vain. I'll bet you think the Bible's about you.
6: Don't you? Don't you? Alright, so
2: as
1: promised, we're going to be listening to a portion of a Stephen Furtick sermon entitled More Likes. And. This is this is just convoluted on so many different levels, it's not even funny. But the the thing I'm going to be teasing out, if you would, is this assumption that God has some big dream for your life. It's right there in the middle of this sermon by uh, Stephen Furtick. Hang on, I better turn off the music. All right. And um, in this sermon, aside from the purpose-driven weirdness going on there, you're going to actually hear Stephen Furtick. Narsajit, the the story of Jesus' temptation by the devil in the wilderness. No kidding. And and it all has to do with the devil trying to knock Jesus off of his purpose. Yeah, just listen in. Um, I want to title the rest of this message. I want to call it More Likes.
5: And if you write that across the top of your page, because I'm going to give you three... Three things to consider today. But the title is More Likes. More Likes. And I'll use as a passage, since we're talking about holiness and since only Jesus is holy, I'll use a passage where Jesus, the most holy person who ever lived, was tempted to abandon his calling. And he was tempted directly by the devil. It's in Matthew
1: chapter 4. Okay, so... Jesus was tempted to abandon his calling. <clears throat> All right, let's take a look at the passage first. We'll take a look at the passage first because obviously, I just can't, you know, just let that go by without at least taking a look at the passage. And what I'll do is I will let CFW Walther, uh, the, uh, the one of the fathers of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod explain to us what's going on in this passage. But let me read the passage. Uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, I should note here that um, if you want the fuller context, you have to go into chapter 3. And in chapter 3, you get the uh, the rest of the story, as they like to say. And what I mean by that is is that in chapter 3, we find out what was going on. In chapter 3, Jesus is um, baptized by John the Baptist, you know, so during his baptism, we hear a voice from heaven. So let me go into Matthew chapter three. I'll start at verse 13. So we have the context of what's going on here. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, "I, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. And Jesus answered him, Let it be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So here we hear the voice of God declaring Jesus to be the beloved Son of God. Okay? This is important for this next portion. Then Matthew chapter 4. So then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And then the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now notice, what is the devil going after here? The devil is trying to go after Jesus the same way that the devil went after Adam and Eve, right? Did God really say, you can hear the echoes of the, uh, of, of the serpent in the Garden of Eden right here, if you are the son of God, the tempter says. So what's, what's the tempter trying to do? It's to get Jesus to doubt God's word, to doubt the goodness of God, to doubt what he heard God say. So the, And so Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, here we go again. So Jesus isn't being tempted to get off of his purpose, so to speak, although that would have actually been the result of it. But here the devil's going after Jesus to not trust that word of God, Right. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. The devil misquoting scripture, which is his favorite thing to do. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all of these I will give to you, if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So you know, notice that Jesus here does something that no human being has ever been able to do. Go toe-to-toe to toe with the devil and win. And notice Jesus didn't do this when he was at his zenith in strength. He did this when he was at his weakest having fasted for 40 days, and he was hungry. Now, Walther writes of this passage. Actually, this is from a sermon of Walther's. And Walther, preaching on this passage, says this, An exceedingly wonderful battle is explained to us in our gospel today. Shortly before, when Christ was baptized, the heavens opened up above him as if they wanted to descend upon the earth. And immediately after his baptism, hell opened up under Christ and rushed upon him with all of its power. How wonderful. The Son of God in almighty power had once cast Satan out of heaven, but here on earth he let himself be attacked by him, let himself be led around, sneered at, and ridiculed. He did not conquer Satan, as he very well could have, by one word of his omnipotence, but by the written word of God. He who is the eternal light battled with the spirit of darkness, the eternal truth with the spirit of lies, the most holy with the spirit of impurity, the king of heaven with the powerless prisoner of hell. The Son of God allowed himself to be placed on the pinnacle of the temple and permitted the tempter to demand that he worship him. What a wonderful battle! If Christ had not wanted it, Satan would not have appeared before him, tempted him, and attacked him. But Christ here did not fight for himself. Instead, He fought as surety, as a third party, as a substitute for the entire human race. By sin, all people sold themselves to Satan, becoming servants and subjects of his kingdom. Therefore, when Christ wanted to redeem men and save them, he came as the true owner of all people's souls to conquer Satan, to destroy his kingdom, to remove his plunder from him, to free us from his dark power and to lead us the kingdom of grace into the kingdom of eternal glory. Christ did this mainly by his bloody death of atonement on the cross for all the sins of the world. By this, the head of the snake was totally crushed, and all people were completely redeemed. The battle with Satan described in our text was the beginning. It was the first engagement that had to be fought by the prince of our salvation to trample Satan under his feet and to deal the first deadly wounds to him. It was the first defeat the, the hellish army had to experience to show them that the stronger one had now come. So this is what this text is about. It's about Christ conquering. But listen carefully to Stephen Furtick and what he's doing with this text, because it is absolutely bizarre. I'll back it up just a smidge. Here we go.
5: I'll use a passage where Jesus, the most holy person who ever lived, was tempted to abandon his calling And he was tempted directly by the devil. It's in Matthew chapter 4. And I'll show you now over the next few moments how the three ways that Satan tempted Jesus not to live a holy life are the same three ways that he tempts us.
1: Uh Uh-huh. So this is somehow about Satan tempting us to not lead a holy life so that we don't experience our purpose. Let me fast forward a little bit in the sermon. We continue. All
5: right. Now, I suggest to you... That uh, that we live so often for the wrong likes, that we miss the calling of the life God has called us to live.
1: That we miss the calling that God has called us to live. So, because we're living for the wrong likes, you know that you know the likes of the world and all you know likes regarding our own you know, reputation, things like that, that we miss the calling that God has for us. So that's what's kind of going on here. You know, holiness, and this is a sermon about holiness. If you were to listen to it it's in, in its entirety and context, you know, he's prying, trying to preach about the importance of holiness and what it means, but it's holiness in the context of, well, you can't, you know, experience your God-given dream vision for your life and, and you know, not be holy at the same time. We continue, though. Let's Let's continue with the sermon.
5: The Wrong Lights. OK, and, and, and I think the first thing we ought to address about this is that a lot of times I live for more likes for me. And when I'm so consumed with what I like and what I want and what I think I need, I miss the life that God wants to
1: give. Uh Uh-huh, so you miss the life that God wants to give you, this big dream vision for your life. You miss that uh, if you're chasing after the wrong likes. And apparently the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness somehow gives us the model that we can follow after so that we don't, like Jesus, fall into the temptations of the devil in order that we can have this dream vision for our lives. To which I basically say... What is it with these people in this dream purpose, vision thing that you know they think God has for them? We continue. Makes sense? Let me show you in Matthew chapter
5: 4. Jesus is hungry because he's been fasting 40 days. And Satan takes the opportunity to come to him when he's weak. The scripture says that after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That's got to be the most obvious verse in the Bible, don't you think? <laughs> but verse 3 says that the tempter... Came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And so Satan tries to get the son of God to fulfill a God-given hunger in an ungodly way. To, to turn the stones into bread, to, to break the fast and to fulfill his hunger the wrong way. But Jesus answered, verse 4, it is written, men shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, I've got something that is more important to me than what I want in this moment. Maybe the reason that God said Jesus was hungry is so we wouldn't think that he was so superhuman because he was fully God but he was also fully man that we would mistake the the meaning of this temptation you know in other words he really was hungry and he really could have done something about his hunger and sometimes you really do get lonely and you get so lonely that you'll compromise your holy
1: calling just so you don't have to feel lonely anymore even if it means now did you catch that segue it happened so fast I mean in one breath he was actually talking about Jesus and in the next breath he completely switched the subject to you yeah you know, if it, it blink and you miss it that's this is narcissistic eisegesis let me back this up listen again he's talking about jesus it immediately switches to you and your ability to fulfill some dream vision purpose thingy for your life listen again is more important to me than what I want in this moment. Maybe the reason that God said Jesus was hungry is so
5: we wouldn't think that he was so superhuman because he was fully God, but he was also fully man, that we would mistake the the meaning of this temptation. You know, in other words, he really was hungry and he really could have done something about his hunger. And
1: sometimes you really do get lonely. and (laughs) And sometimes you really do get lonely just completely switches the subject in the middle of his description of this text. You get so lonely that you'll compromise your holy calling. Compromise your holy calling. So this is all about don't compromise, otherwise you're going to miss your holy calling, your big dream vision purpose thingy for your life. Just so
5: you don't have to feel lonely anymore, even if it means that sexually you have to get way outside of the way God designed it. Because you know what? When it comes down to it, I hate to admit it,
1: but the basic fact of it is I like me some me. And so- Yeah, I agree with that about you, Stephen, because that's who you constantly preach about. Even when the text is about Jesus, it's about Jesus, and you've turned it into something about you yeah you definitely like you some you that's for sure so often in my life, I miss my holy calling,
5: not because of some complicated thing.
1: There we go again. let me back this up did you, you, you miss sometimes I miss my holy calling it's all about some dream vision purpose thingy you miss it you know because what well, listen again and so often
5: in my life, I miss my holy calling, not because of some complicated thing that I don't understand, but because I don't want to do what God is said to do. I know this is real simple and basic, but somebody needs to say it. Sometimes we're just flat-out hypocrites. We know it's wrong. We know it's harmful. We know it's going to take us to a dry place, but right now it feels good, so we'll go to the world to turn stones into bread, and when we wake up hungry again with all kinds of indigestion from what we ate, we wonder what went wrong. I loved myself more than I loved the purpose of God, and sometimes... Hey, let's
1: admit it. And I love myself some more than I love the purpose of God. So what has he done to this text about Jesus? He's taken it, twisted it, so it's no longer about Jesus and his defeat of Satan. And now it's now it's now Jesus is just modeling for us what we need to do to defeat Satan so that like him, we can achieve God's dream purpose thingy for our life. What is this? Well, number one, it's narcissistic eisegesis. Yes, I agree. It's it's that. But, I mean, seriously, how is it that Christians have taken all of these passages about Jesus and warped and twist them and bent them in on themselves in such a way that they turn them into something about you? That text is not about you following some plan so that you can cause the devil to flee from you. So like Jesus, you can achieve your purpose because, you know, Jesus achieved his and, you know, God wants you to achieve yours. And he has a dr- big dream for you. And so you need to learn like, you know, like how Jesus did it so that you can achieve your purpose, too, like Jesus did. You get what I'm saying? Hopefully I'm not confusing you all, but this is just something that is just utterly disturbing i think that this is the black hole center of mass and the whole purpose-driven theology and it's a false center that focuses in on you and your purpose rather than on christ and what he's done to redeem and save you a lost sinful being All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, Facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there at Pirate Christian. Quick break, when we come back, we're going to be listening to a sermon on a Japanese a documentary about a Japanese sushi chef in a Tokyo train station. Hero Dreams of Sushi. I don't know. Stay tuned. Don't miss it.
7: Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
1: Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheapo Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices visit pirate christian com forward slash cheap write down the promo code and then click on the banner and then book your travel today again that's pirate christian com forward slash cheap
4: yeah! Hooray! that was a great happy birthday song okay
3: charlie time to open up your presents
6: all right grandpa uh, let's see what we have here Oh, yay. I've always wanted new teeth. Oh, sorry, dear. I seem to have accidentally wrapped my spare dentures. (laughs) Here's your real present. Oh, look. It's a glow stick.
4: We all know how much you like Star Wars, so we got you one of those lightsaber thingies. Oh, thanks. Do not fear, nerds of the world. Never again will you have to deal with poorly made gifts and cheap knockoffs. Just tell your antiquated relatives about ThinkGeek. At ThinkGeek, you will find a vast selection of creative and quality products to tickle your every fancy. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio
1: okay we're back hour number two of fighting for the faith sermon (laughs) review time (laughs) I don't think I've ever heard a sermon quite like this can it even be called a sermon I just don't know Let's do this right, though. Here we go. Hey, ho. Look at the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's, (laughs) I don't know what this is. (laughs) Sermon? I, I don't know comes to us via the orchard in aurora illinois scott hodge presiding the name of this a movie review i don't know what this is it, it the name of it is uh the orchard summer film festival and this particular sermon is entitled hero dreams of sushi i am convinced that this is an example of what it sounds like when a pastor is completely given up on even trying to preach the word of god and just just to just go with anything that comes that to mind or suits his fancy yes we're gonna be hearing something to do during a sermon time with a documentary film about a guy who owns a sushi restaurant inside of a Tokyo train station yeah I don't know what else to say so let me go <laughs> Kill the music here. And without any further ado, here is Hero Dreams of Sushi by Scott
7: Hodge. (laughs) Hang on. Here we go. Uh, Hero Dreams of Sushi. I don't know how many sushi fans we have here, but uh, a few. Oh, that's good. Um, If you're not a sushi fan, though, I should warn you that if you watch this documentary, there's a high likelihood that you will actually become converted okay you 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 will, you will want to go and eat sushi after watching this it's a, it's a be- now this is interesting.
1: I mean here we have a Christian pastor talking about conversion, not conversion to you know from paganism or unbelief to repentant faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, but conversion to uh, being somebody who eats sushi
7: okay, beautiful thing um, so anyway, I first saw this documentary is about a year ago. And I remember before I watched it, I was sort of thinking to myself, huh, I wonder how much I'm really going to get into this. You know, this movie about, this documentary about um, some random sushi chef in Tokyo. And, uh, and so I, 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 I watched it, and within about a minute and a half of watching this documentary, I realized pretty quickly that this was not just some documentary about some random sushi chef in, uh, in Tokyo, uh, but, but rather about something much bigger, something, something much greater. And as you saw from the preview, it's all centered upon this man by the name of Jiro. So, so here's the deal. Jiro owns this, this tiny little, uh, sushi bar, uh, that's located in very, in, very inconspicuously located, I should say, in, in, the subways of Tokyo. Uh, the, the restaurant has 10 seats. That's it. Uh, it has no menus, serves only sushi, and reservations take, well, now, of course, uh, probably about 12 to 18 months before you can get in, if not even longer. Um, it's, it's, pr- it's a pretty big deal. Prices start at around, I think, 35,000 yen, which is, uh, I think, around $360. Uh, and so, so, you know, this is, a, this is quite quite a place. And then not only that, but it's also one of the, rated one of the, the uh, best sushi restaurants in the world. It has three Michelin stars, and that's a huge deal. I mean, one Michelin star is a huge honor. So to have three Michelin stars is incredible. I mean, you're one in, in out of about a hundred restaurants in the entire world who who has who has the honor of having three Michelin stars, and it and it's all because of the passion of one man who has dedicated his life to uh, perfecting the art of sushi. You know, a man who is who is uh, gosh, I mean, who's so passionate about. Now, this is
1: weird, and the irony here is that we're listening to Scott Hodge. Okay, Scott Hodge is a seeker-driven leader. He's supposed to be a pastor, okay? That being the case, we would expect that his passion as a preacher, if you would, would be to perfect the art of preaching God's Word. Okay, Second Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells young Pastor Timothy, quote, um, I can actually back this up. I'm going to go into chapter 3 and then go into chapter 4. Well, let, me, let me do that, okay? <clears throat> Here's what he says. Um, <clears throat> here we go. Verse 14, chapter 3. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred scriptures, the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching— For a time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So, you know, since Scott Hodge is supposedly a Christian pastor, right, uh, we would expect that if if he's going to have a passion for anything, it would be the passion for perfecting the preaching of God's word. That's the irony here is that this thing that he's supposedly harping on, the, the major message of this movie, he's, not, he's guilty of not doing it because he's not doing his job. His job's to preach the word. We continue.
7: About uh, and so devoted uh, to, towards what he does that he actually uh, oftentimes jumps out of bed in the middle of the night after having dreams about how to make even better sushi. Thus, the title of the film, Jiro Dreams of Sushi. It's a pretty pretty remarkable story. Let's watch um, another clip.
1: Now, I apologize. I don't have the ability to put subtitles in here, but I'm leaving this in so that you can hear what this sermon is. I mean, this is on their podcast, so if you don't know Japanese, well, you're not really being edified. I wonder if this qualifies as like an improper use of speaking in tongues in church.
5: 本当に厳しい顔して仕事をする人で、お寿司
1: Wait, 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 a, a translation's coming to me. I think this Japanese gentleman is saying, Scott Hodge, why are you not doing what God's word says and preach the word? This is supposed to be the time when you're supposed to open up your Bible and preach the word. Why are you playing this movie? oh Just remember, this is sermon time at the orchard up in Aurora, Illinois. Are you being built up in God's word made complete for every good work that God has called you to do by listening to this and watching this? I mean, next week he should probably be giving fashion tips from Cosmo magazine. It's just as good as guy 's word, right?
7: Pretty interesting, isn't it? Can, can you imagine being that guy, you know, sitting there and, and you're tasting the sushi and the Jiro's like staring at you? It reminds me, my wife and I were in Chicago eating at this French-Vietnamese restaurant one time, and and the chef um, comes to our table and says, hey, compliments to the house, and it's it's this thing called sweetbreads, and this is not bread, okay? Uh, You can look it up later. It's something else. And um, I have this horrible gag reflex, like awful, okay? And it, no, I'm not kidding you, like even sometimes just very minor things. And so, you know, we're sitting there at this table, and and, uh, we're trying these sweetbreads, and... I put one in my mouth, and I start to swallow it, and it doesn't quite make its way down. And my my wife sees me, like, with this look on my face, and she goes, no. (laughs) No. And all of a sudden, the chef is starting to come. She's like, chef is coming. Swallow it. Swallow it, Scott. It's all mental. Swallow And I'm like, (sighs) oh, girl. Actually, right now... My gag reflex is act, being active. Um, so anyway, oh, let me just take a deep breath, meditate here for a second. Um, lots we can learn from a movie like this, from this film. Um, you know, so much. Gosh, I mean, the, the idea of simplicity and how, you know, you've got a guy here who instead of, of, of trying to do a million things good, he's focused on doing one thing really great. You know, I think you also, you know, you get this. this.
1: Yeah, kind of like Scott Hodge isn't focusing on doing the one thing
7: he's supposed to be doing great. He's not focusing on that, you know, preaching the word sense that sometimes you have to explore and go into, uh, you have to go out of your way to find some of the most uh, uh, unique and amazing, amazing gifts, right? But, but, but out of all of the different lessons, I think if there's one thing that is probably most evident in this film, it is, it is I think, without a doubt, this amazing amount of dedication that, that we see in this 85-year-old man named Jiro.
1: If only Scott Hodge had that same amount of dedication to preaching the word. I mean, what a difference that would make, don't you think?
7: Amazing. In fact, in, in Giro's own words, he says this. Once you decide on your occupation, you must Im- immerse yourself in your work. You have to fall in... And Scott Hodge, I mean, his his
1: occupation is pastor. He's not. He hasn't immersed himself in the job of preaching the word. Weird, huh? It's just... These kind of sermons just ring so hollow when you think about the irony of what's going
7: on in them. Love with your work. Never complain about your job. You must dedicate your life to mastering your skill. That's the secret of success and is the key to being regarded honorably. Man, And he shows us, I mean, this this immense amount of commitment, of discipline, of uh, mastery, of consistency. I mean, it's impeccable. You know, what comes to mind is a passage of Scripture um, found in Colossians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul, he says uh, to us today even, he says, look, whatever it is you do, whatever you do, do it with what? What does it say? All of your heart.
1: Yeah, and you're a pastor. Your job is to really preach the word. We got one verse so far. And really, this is all predicated by a discussion of a documentary on a sushi guy.
7: Whatever it is you do, do it with all of your heart as working for the Lord. Not, don't do it just for your boss. Don't do it just for your wife, your husband. Do it as unto the Lord. And all of a sudden, whatever it is you're doing becomes like an act of worship, doesn't it? And, and I think there's no doubt that this man, Jiro, I mean, he is putting his heart and his soul into the work that he has dedicated his life to. And as a result of that, he's become one of the best in the world at what he does. And, and yet here's the amazing thing. Even at that, okay, even, uh, you know, I mean, even at this place of becoming one of the best at what he does, his journey hasn't stopped. No, no, his journey has continues. In fact, uh, right alongside with this commitment and this devotion and, and, and digging his heels in and, and, and doing the same thing with great consistency right along with that is this, is this incredible openness. Right? Is, is, this, is this openness to newer and better ways of doing uh, his work. Work that he's already proven he can do pretty doggone well. Right There's this openness. I mean, there is a commitment to the pursuit of innovation, to, to creativity, and the truth that that... No- is Jiro
1: a Christian? Is the reason why he's such a great sushi chef is because he's a Christian doing
7: all of his sushi making under the Lord? Hmm. No matter how good you become at whatever it is you do in life, no matter how good, no matter how, how at the top of your game you become, you must never be satisfied with where you're at. You know, it's like on one hand, there is this, it's this, this pretty amazing. I mean, there's this deep commitment, this deep focus, this, this deep groundedness. And yet there's also this, this extremely open flexibility and, and willingness to grow and to learn and to be changed. And, and I'll tell you what, when I take a step back from this film, what I see is a, a pretty powerful metaphor for what our lives really ought to look like as well.
1: I mean, a life that on one hand... Really, if that's the case, then uh, isn't the, the whole point of the movie is all about how he does this under the Lord, right?
7: And is very committed and very, uh, very focused and disciplined and consistent. And, and, you know, we're in it for the long haul and, and, and we're committed to it. And yet, a life that, at the same time, is also extremely open open to learning and discovering and innovating and growing and changing and finding new and better ways to do whatever it is we do in life and, and, and in the kind of even just in how we live period and, and yet the the crazy thing is is like that can sound really good in a sermon or that can sound really good on paper but, but you know that that is uh, a place i mean to really to, to really uh, i guess you could say uh, uh, sit in the midst of that place. It's a place of great tension. It's a lot a lot easier said than done, right? I mean, I think probably for most of us, depending on how we're wired, we, we probably would say that we lean a little more towards one side of the equation than the other, right? Perhaps some of you, you're here and, uh, you know, this whole idea of being committed and focused and consistent and in it for the long haul, like, like you, 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 a little, you feel a little bit of anxiety with that. Right? And then the idea of like doing the same thing over and over for 75 years, right? Like you start having heart palpitations, right? And, and how many of you would say, like, that's kind of you? It's a little bit like this idea. Don't lie, because I got my hand up right now, right? You, you, you kind of like, are you kidding me? God, I think that it would be miserable. Same thing for 75 years. <laughs> Right? And, and, and then on the other hand, probably a lot of us would say, no, no, I'm, more of the, I'm probably a little more wired uh, to naturally have that consistency and, and that stability and, and that commitment. And for you, maybe the challenge is this whole idea of change. Right? And so it's not that you don't like the idea of change. You like the idea of change as long as you don't have to change. Right? Isn't that funny? Well, I love change as long as I don't have to change. As long as it's everyone else around me changing, right? I like the idea of change. If it's my husband changing, if it's my wife changing, if it's, right, someone else. Uh, How many of you would say, though, change is a little bit of a challenge for you? You're the same ones who sit in the same chairs, in the same sections, every freaking weekend, right? (laughs) Listen, if there's one thing I think we see in this film... It is the story of a man who's chosen to live in the midst of both things.
1: Uh-huh. So, I mean, this, I don't even know if Jiro is a uh, Christian or not, but he's being held up as the perfect model of Christian sanctification. I mean, the guy who is ultimately committed to his purpose-driven life which is the reason why, of course, he can be held up in a purpose-driven church as an example of somebody to follow, even though he, there's no mention of his faith or trust in Christ for the forgiveness of his sins, because this is a guy who discovered his purpose and then went after it with consistency and tenacity, and he has achieved it. So he's held up as a purpose-driven saint in a purpose-driven church. We continue
7: who has chosen to to live in the midst of both of these realities, deeply committed and yet extremely open to doing things in a newer and better way. Now, this last week, as I was thinking about this talk and and had just watched this this movie again, and uh, at the same time, I just happened to be reading a book about the Benedictine monks. And it's interesting because uh, it was, I guess, it's almost ironic because as I'm reading this book about these Benedictine monks, it was, it was uh, very interesting the correlation I was seeing between the, the commitment that these monks make to the monastery that they join and the kind of commitment we see in someone like, uh, like Giro. I mean, so, so for example, what I mean by this is, uh, let's take the Benedictine monks for a second. Okay, you've got this group of people who, when they make a commitment to join a monastery, um, it's a very deep commitment. And so what they do is they're making this commitment, this promise to live according to what's known as the Benedictine way of life. And it consists of three primary things, obedience, stability, and conversion stability obedience so now we're holding
1: up not just a a sushi chef now we're holding up monks (sighs) roman catholic benedictine monks up as an example of uh living the purpose-driven life this just gets weirder by the day
7: stability and conversion and we'll talk about those in a second but these are three things, so it's very interesting, because these are three things that I think are uh, very important for us. I think not only do they bring this great, I think, balance into our lives in some way, um, but I think they're also... Balance? Are we into Eastern mysticism now? so extremely important if we're really going to live and become the people who, who God's created us to be, which involves, I think... all
1: And there's that purpose-driven
7: angle again. All three of these things. And so, so what I want to do this morning is I want to dive in, and I just want to sort of skim the surface of these a little bit. And and then um, maybe you can write these down and just chew on them more at home this week or, or whatever. But I want, to, I want to talk about these three. And I want to start by talking about obedience. Would you say that word with me? Obedience. So what is obedience? Because it's a word that we hear all the time. Well, the the word obedience comes from a Latin word, dear, audiere, A-U-D-I-E-R-E. And the word means... To hear or listen to. That's pretty interesting. You know, I I think in in many ways, like, this, uh, this idea of obedience has a lot to do with exactly that. Hearing and listening. Right? Keeping our ears to the ground and doing what? Listening to what the Spirit is saying to us at any given moment in our lives. Sometimes not listening to what God 's word
1: says, but listening to whatever the Spirit is telling you in any given moment.
7: What? Times in big ways, right? What, what God is calling us to in big, major ways that completely mess up our lives, and then and often, and probably most often, in smaller ways that at in, in many levels can even you know feel insignificant or small right but in those in those sort of those moment by moment uh you know basis in our lives so 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 obedience is about listening but then of course obedience is also about responding isn't it it's about responding and ultimately it's learning i think how to respond uh and it does. so by the way this is all law no
1: gospel obedience is all about obeying right and here he's saying obeying the spirit. But God calls us, if you want to get down and dirty here, you want to, do you want to obey?
7: Well, we're talking about the law, the Ten Commandments. How you doing on that? Doesn't, sometimes it takes time to get to this place. But, but it's learning, I think, to be able to respond uh, at, at, a, at a little bit of a faster rate, right? With a, with, a, with, a, with a little bit, I mean, rate of obedience. Maybe that's a good way of saying it. Like what, our rate of obedience should, should pick up a little bit after time right so, so it 's about so if you 're really obeying you 're
1: obeying quicker quicker when God speaks something uh, through the spirit into your
7: heart, supposedly, listening to what the spirit is saying, and then being willing to answer with a courageous yes to whatever that is, now, of course, that looks different for all of us right I mean what, what the spirit is calling you to at any particular moment in your life is going to look different from what the spirit might be calling me to do in my life at, at that same time and, and in fact, if I try to you know, emulate whatever it is the Spirit's calling you to do, and that's not what I'm supposed to do, I'm probably going to be miserable, and I, I may also fail miserably as well, right? So, so it looks different for all of us. And and I, I don't know about you, but you know how sometimes... Uh, so obedience looks different for everybody.
1: You know, so if the Spirit's leading you to, you know, <clears throat> head off with your secretary and have an affair, that looks different than somebody who's... The Spirit's leading them to be faithful to their wife, right?
7: Um. Well, on one hand, it, it's... Uh, how do I say this? I think it's hard sometimes to look at someone and be able to actually judge or know, not that you sh- even should. I mean, it's really probably a waste of time. But but to, to look at someone and, and know, like, are they really living in their calling? Is this what they're supposed to do? Um, it's hard to know that sometimes. But but I will also say that there are those moments when you run across someone, you meet someone or you, you have an interaction with someone, and you have this incredible sense that, holy smokes, this person is doing Exactly what they were put here on this earth to do. You know what I'm saying? Holy smokes, they're purpose driven. You ever meet someone like that? You see someone do something, you're like, oh my god, like that is amazing. Like they are absolutely called to do this. I mean, it's it's uh, it's undeniable, right? Because it's so unique. It's 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 powerful. It's great. I mean, it's like Jira. It's like you, you don't eat sushi like that ever. There's something unique about this. And and, and here's the thing, look, I believe that there's something unique that God has called each and every one of us to in this life. And in fact, I'll even take that a step further and say that, that I believe that there is something very unique that you have been put here on this earth to do that no one else is capable of doing in the exact same way as you are capable of doing.
1: Great. You got a verse that says that? You're supposed to preach the word, right?
7: Now, I know that can feel very heavy because, you know, it's like, oh, okay, no problem. Let me just figure that out over the weekend, right? Well, here, here's the thing. I get that. It's hard sometimes, man. It's hard to know. I mean, do, do any of you struggle with knowing, like, what is, what, why am I here, right? I think we all do at times. And so I, I guess what I would say is I don't think it's— See, my purpose,
1: apparently, uh, who knew? I mean, was to— actually correct and rebuke those who are teaching false doctrine and to practice biblical discernment to expose
7: false teachers like Scott Hodge. Wow, i mean, just like, I'm just like hero. It's really necessary to take on that pressure of trying to figure out what it is that you've been put on this earth to do. I think what is, what is probably more important and what is, I think, very necessary is just very simply opening our hearts and being willing to listen and to pay attention to those nudges of the Spirit, the whisper.
1: And where in the Bible does it say I'm going to get nudges of the Spirit that are going to push me into my God-given destiny dream vision thing?
7: ...of the Spirit, the 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 still small voice of God in our lives, and to be willing uh, to... Yeah,
1: the passage regarding the still small voice, it doesn't teach that God's going to give me nudges and push me in the direction of my dream vision. That's not what that passage says at all.
7: To have the faith and the courage to say yes to to even the small parts of our lives. I mean, see, sometimes we want to figure out, like, what's the big thing, but we're not even saying yes to the small things yet. Right? I mean, we should actually be thankful that God usually starts at the smaller things because most of us, like talk about gag reflex, right? I mean, that that would kick in heavy on the big things. And it's like, no way. Are you kidding me? Right? So thankfully, God actually starts us out on the smaller things. Right, where you can make mistakes, you can fail, and it's not going to be as big of a deal, right? You learn from that, and I mean, he who is faithful in little will be faithful with much. Vice versa. I mean, it's like, listen, be faithful to the small things that are happening right now. Be faithful to listening to the voice of the Spirit in your everyday life, in your home with your children. Uh, Again, where am I?
1: Where in the Bible does it teach that we as Christians are going to have the God, God, the Holy Spirit nudging and directing, and the still small voice thingy? pushing us in the direction of our dream vision for
7: our life. There's no passage that says this, not one. With your, with your spouse, uh, in, in, in your relationships, in your workplace, I mean, it's really, it starts right there. You know, I think, I think what we see in Jesus, such a uh, uh, beautiful example of someone who is so committed to obedience. I mean, you know... Yeah, Jesus, I mean, he's the
1: ultimate example of the purpose-driven life.
7: The sense you get was, was that Jesus was very—I mean, he, he had this great amount of clarity, I think, as to why he was here. You know, and I mean, and, and, and he was clear about. It. I mean, he, he proclaimed it pretty in a pretty straightforward way. And um, I mean, oftentimes, you know, you hear Jesus say things like like this. So, for example, John six thirty-eight. Jesus would say, "You know, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of the Father." Right? I mean, you talk about, listen, do you want to pray an extremely dangerous prayer? Pray something like this. God, not my will, but yours be done. That's a scary prayer to pray. Not my will, but yours be done.
1: And the weird part about that is that if you go and look up that passage that he's supposedly referring to and preaching about here... Jesus is praying that in the garden uh, just as he's about to be arrested and then beaten, flogged, scourged, have a crown of thorns stuck into his head and then crucified. So the not my will, but your will be done is in talking about letting this cup pass from him because he knows what he's about to suffer. But that was for our sins. It was for our salvation. So, man, man. This, this Talk about missing the whole point of that passage.
7: That's, that, that can be a tough one. But I'll tell you, it is the perfect posture for someone who, who is interested in embracing obedience. Let's go to the next one. So obedience was one. The second commitment that these Benedictine monks had to, uh, ha, that, that they would make is this thing called stability. Would you say that word with me? Stability. Now, for the monks in the Benedictine tradition... Uh, this meant making a commitment to live their entire lives in the monastery that they have joined. Okay, so the idea is that they, they, they don't get up and run away when the challenges and the difficulties uh, come their way, that, that are inevitably going to come their way as they journey through life. Right? They're not going to run away from it. They make this deep, deep commitment, no matter what I am in. It's similar, I think, to the commitment we really ought to make in marriage, right? And, and, or in deep friendships, till death do us part, right? And, and instead of running away or feeling like after a while, you know, maybe there's a, some sort of money-back guarantee in this friendship or this marriage, like, can I trade my husband in for a newer model who doesn't snore, okay? Or- so
1: you're describing adultery and divorce, which are sins, Right.
7: Christ died for those sins. Whatever, right? But, but what this means is like we stay committed and, and we work to improve the relationship even when we want to, you know, force gump it out of there and run the opposite direction. Listen, do you know what I think stability is so good, good for? And I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, the Enneagram, but I am, what, I am on the Enneagram spectrum. It's like a personality profile thing, sort of. Um, but I am a seven, and a seven is someone who really can, can struggle with staying put. I know that's hard for you to imagine. Right. Um, But but in many ways, I think stability can almost be seen as like a uh, and the reason why he's talking about
1: stability is because the Benedictine Benedictine monks think this is a very important thing
7: uh, as an antidote to this, uh, this this continual restlessness of heart and mind that so many of us have. You know this tendency I think to uh, that, that I think it pushes us to search for new all the time new experiences new relationships new i don't know new geographical locations or, or whatever it might be but whatever we can find that's new that will help us to escape the difficulties and will help us to move out of the place of having to solve problems in places that we can maybe e- be easier for us to avoid pain in our lives and 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 the problem is is that when we when we when we You know, allow this restlessness to take over in our lives. What happens is life itself and the relationships in our lives and even things like intimacy never go to the depths that they were made to go to. And everything, the relationships, the connections, everything stays very shallow and very fragile in our lives. So I think in many ways, like stability is a good thing because it, it helps ground us. And, and, and yeah, this is kind of an abstract concept. You got
1: any passages that point this out and really dig deep into this importance of stability thing.
7: And, and that often ends up, man, when you're grounded, when you, when you dig your heels in and you make commitment, man, it, it allows you to go some places that a lot of people never end up going. This author named Edward Selder he writes about a few qualities of stability, and,
1: uh,
7: and and he proposes that there
1: are a couple not one of the apostles, not one of the prophets, just some author. Okay,
7: arenas of our life that we really ought to be very serious about embracing stability in. One of those is uh, he calls it a stability of place, P L A C E. Stability of place. And, and, you know, if you think about this film of Jiro for a second, you know, you've got a guy here who, I mean, they've got 10, 10 seats in his, uh, you know, his, his sushi restaurant, his, his sushi bar. Do, do you realize, like, this guy could so easily change that situation? No problem. I mean, he could, he, if he wanted to have a 100-seat restaurant, no pro- he could be in the, the, the best part of Tokyo if he wanted to be. But, but what does he do? He, he says, no, 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 no. No, no, I, I'm staying put. I'm going to say right here, right? And, I, and I, I mean, I know I could expand. If I wanted to, I could probably do, you know, locations in, in Vegas and, and in, you know, New York and all these cities around the world or whatever. But he doesn't. He's committed to that place, which means for him. Yeah,
1: if only the uh, seeker-driven guys would apply this to their way of doing things in church, then we'd get rid of all these multi-sites, right? Staying small.
7: Now, I'm not suggesting that whatever you do in your life, you should not, never think about expanding it or growing it or, or whatever. I, I think that's all fine. But I think there is some really, really good things to, to learn from someone who intentionally uh, chooses not to expand when they very easily could. You know, I mean, stability. So for us, like, what is that? Well, stability of place. I mean, what about the place that God has put us in this world? Listen, that's been a hard one for me. Those of you who know my story. You know, it's not always been easy for me to embrace the place that God has called me to be. And, uh, you know, so for me, it's meant, okay, I've gotta, I, I need to be committed to this place. Not, not necessarily this church, but the city overall, the place in life. And, and so, for example, so for us as a community even, maybe it's about being committed to learning the history of this place, right? Maybe it's about uh, getting to know our neighbors, Right, the tendency might be to, ah, I don't know, I'm not, I might not be here for long. I don't, you know, I'm going to kind of, don't want to establish too many relationships. No, no, what, what if it's about getting to know or getting to know the stories of the people who live in that place, right? And maybe it's about honoring the rituals and the practices that are... Wo- Notice he keeps saying, what if it, what if it, what
1: if it, what if it, what if it? This has no authority at all because it doesn't actually have God's word as its underpinning. We've heard two verses out of context so far.
7: Woven into the landscape. This fall, we're going to take three weekends in a row, and we're going to dedicate those weekends to the exploration of how we as a community can make greater effort and and make a more tangible commitment to these type of things right here in our city, in Aurora. We're going to discuss, like, what does it look like to not just be a church in the city, but what does it actually look like to be a part of what makes the city what it is? So, stability of place. Another one that he talks about is stability of community. Would you say the word community with me? Ready? Community. Well, let's, let's just have a real honest conversation about this for, for a few minutes. Can we do that? I mean, every, not that everything else was a lie, but that sounds good to say that, I guess. Anyway, uh, uh, community. So, this one can be quite challenging. And, and it's, I think it's challenging because community always involves other people. Right? And anytime there are people involved in anything, there is the potential for there to be a real mess, right? Don't look at me like that. My lord. Like you you just don't want to agree with me because the, the mess is probably sitting next to you right now, right? Uh, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Keep going, keep going, right? No, but but any time human beings like someone once said, like, man, as long as there are horses in the stable, there's gonna be poop on the ground, right? It's just inevitable. Now, of course, community takes on a lot of different forms in our lives, a lot of different ways that community uh, uh, shows up, I guess. But one that I think is worth us talking about for a minute is church community. Church community. Now, let me tell you something. I know a lot about church community, all right? I've been around church my entire—I call it churchianity. I've been around church my entire life. And I'm going to tell you something. um, I get it. I get the challenges that community brings. I get it. Totally understand. You know, if you think about it, people sometimes use the phrase church family. That's pretty appropriate. Think about your family. Yeah. <laughs> is it? Is it leave it to beaver? Hmm? Look, I mean, think about what are some of the challenges that you face in your family. We all do. People sometimes say, like, Scott, my family, they're just so dysfunctional. And I say, well, join the club. All of our families are a bit dysfunctional, right? The question is, like, maybe it's a matter of like levels of dysfunction. I don't know. So, what are some of the challenges in your family? Well, there's probably a lot of different challenges. But you know what? You commit to it. You commit. You're committed. You stay put, right? Well, but it's not always easy. And I think the same is true for church communities, right? Now, it's not always the case right away. So, so like, let's say you, you, some of you who are new to the, the orchard or, you know, if you think back to when you were new to the church, there's always sort of that honeymoon period, right, when you walk into a church and it's like, wow, man, this place. It's like perfect. Well, not anymore because you just showed up. <laughs> ah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> a little slow today. It's okay. Okay. Um, no, but, right, we, it's, it's like marriage, right? At first it's like, oh, it's good. I got, I got like, holy goose, goosebumps, right? Holy goosebumps. It's so, the music is so good. It's so different from my last church. And, man, like, like, the preacher way better looking than my last one, you know? Woo! Just kidding. But eventually what happens? Well, eventually the honeymoon stage starts fading away, right? And what happens? Well, at some point, your commitment to the community gets challenged by something, something. Sometimes it gets challenged by people in the community who do or say stupid things, right? They're humans. Humans do that. And so maybe intentionally they say something that upsets you or unintentionally or, or they ignore you and you internalize it and all this other stuff. And, and, uh, and so what happens? Well, for most people, because they don't like dealing with conflict or they don't want to have to deal with having this difficult conversation or whatever it might be, well, they just leave. Bye. Uh, an- another reason I think that people's commitment to community gets challenged, uh, n- another thing that happens is uh, this thing called Change churches change like if you know the, the story of the orchard we are a church that is all about change right but sometimes yeah i agree you've changed christian
1: orthodoxy into this purpose-driven nonsense and you've changed using the bible to just just winging it and just preaching on whatever comes to the top of your mind those changes are
7: big changes and they're they're such big changes that often once in a while people will make the decision you know what this, I can't align myself with where this church is going, or it's, you know, the values or the mission. I, I don't know. I just am not connecting with it. And so people will sometimes make the decision to go to another church that they can connect with and grow with, which is oftentimes the right thing to do. We get that. I get that. You know, look, we've experienced that. We continue to experience that. And you know what? We'll probably always experience that. Uh, people at times making that decision to leave and and although it 's not always easy, I think sometimes um... You know, that's just going to be the way it is because, listen, because of the commitment to what we talked about a minute ago about that commitment of keeping our ears to the ground and listening and saying, God, what do you want to do in this next season? Where do you want to take us? And oftentimes, rather than putting your
1: eyeballs on the book and reading the book and looking at what God has revealed in his word, you're you're putting your ear to the ground, thinking that God, the Holy Spirit is going to speak to you through the ground. Really?
7: man, following that and obeying that is going to require change. And sometimes that change might even be big. And, and, you know, the other option is to just stay the same. I mean, the other option is to not lead where you believe God's telling you to lead. The other option is to, you know, just stay the same and eventually become irrelevant and get stuck and and, and eventually become completely uh, ineffective and irrelevant to the community that God has placed you in. Right, but but can I tell you something?
1: And which passage says that? Because we're supposed to preach the faith once delivered to the saints. Nothing changes in Christianity.
7: Listen, let, let me tell you what I think is really, really powerful. I mean, I mean really powerful. And then that is when the commitment that a person makes to community goes much, much deeper than all of the external stuff. Man, I listen it is so easy to make the thing that you buy into things like methods or programs or style of music or all this external stuff and all of it though is subject to change if a church yeah again which passages
1: from the bible teach this you're just just making all these assertions these unfounded assertions without any biblical backing whatsoever how do we know
7: this is even true any of the stuff that you're saying looks the same as it looked 10 years ago, well, guess what? Chances are in 30 years it's still going to look the same. Churches must change. Look, the message, the mission of Jesus does not change.
1: You've changed it. You're not preaching the message of Jesus at
7: all. But the, the the style and all the—I mean, look—we we get so confused sometimes in church land about, about what's really sacred, right? I mean, look—the color of carpet is not sacred. The style of music is not sacred, right? The—I mean, not, it's that stuff. God gives us so much flexibility in that. And so I, th- I think there's something really powerful when we go beyond all those externals. And we say, you know what, guess what, I- I'm just, I'm just going to grow up. I- I'm going to mature a little bit here. And I'm going to refuse to make it all about what I want and how I think, I- I think everything should be done. And, and I'm going to be willing to sit in that tension. Listen, you don't think about this, but as your pastor, look, In 10 I've been here 10 years. In 10 years, my, my journey has gone all over the place. And, uh, man, there's been times that, like, music-wise or, or even, like, worship style or many things, it's not what I might prefer. But you know what I do? What do I do? Do I just leave? Wouldn't that suck? Bye. It's tempting Sometimes. I was going to start something new that's more into what I'm into right now. But can I tell you something? There's something really powerful about being committed and saying, you know what, I'm going to sit in the tension, I'm going to learn to, to be okay with that discomfort, and, and I'm going to remind myself that, that the purpose of the church goes far beyond personal preferences, and the purpose of the church goes far beyond what I like and what I prefer and what's convenient for me. Why don't you break out the biblical
1: passages that tell us what the purpose of the church is so that we can all see those and you can actually be teaching from God's Word so we can see what exactly God has revealed regarding that, rather than just waiting for some prompting in my heart or listening to the ground expecting the ground to speak to me through the holy spirit
7: me and how i think everything should be done and what programs i think we should have or not have and, and it goes way beyond whether or not the style of music is my favorite genre right now or or whether or not the teaching is exactly the style of teaching i would like to have or or whether or not scott uses nine scriptures in his sermons or three scriptures in his sermons because everyone knows not you haven't
1: used you've only used two out of context this isn't a biblical preaching at all you are, dis- you are literally disobeying what God commands pastors to do,
7: Scott. ...makes it way more spiritual, right? Or, 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 whether, or not, whether or not the emphasis on, is on whatever you think it should be on at any given moment, and we go on down the list, right? I mean, listen. What's really powerful is when your commitment and when my commitment goes way beyond all of that, and, and, and even beyond where you, what you might be experiencing spiritually at any given moment... So let me just explain that for a second. What the Spirit is doing in your life as an individual at any given moment is not exactly the same as what the Holy Spirit is doing in someone else's life at any given moment.
1: Probably. Um, you got a biblical passage for that since you're supposed to be preaching the Word?
7: All right, and just because the Spirit is moving that way in your life doesn't mean that there should be this rule that the Spirit should move that way in everybody else's life. Whew. Speaking of Spirit, I'm about to turn Pentecostal right now. That makes some of you nervous. Good. But see, it, it looks unique. It looks very different for each person. And what the Spirit is doing in you is going to look different than what the Spirit is doing in someone else. And, and, what the Spirit, and even what the Spirit is oftentimes doing uh, uh, you know, uh, in, in the community as a whole. And so and so, what do you do? Can I tell you what a lot of people get tempted to do? And I understand it because it's a hard tension to live in. But what a lot of people do is instead of being forced to work within that tension and saying, you know what? No, no, no. I'm going to dig my heels in. And very few people are willing to do that. What most people do is they choose not to. And so let's say, you know, the spirit moves in some certain way. What a lot of people do is go, let me go now uproot my family from the church and go find another church that, that's more specializes in this form of spirit. And then, and then, what happens? Two years later, there's another shift that happens because the spirit's constantly moving in different and unique ways. So then they they uproot themselves again and go to another church for a couple years, and then the spirit moves again a different way. And before you know it, they're hopping around from one church to another, and 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 they're and none of them, none of the family or or them as an individual, whatever it might be, they they're repeating the cycle over and over and never experience the depth, that stability to community. Can bring. Mm, so
1: you better stay put. You know, you got to stay put because God doesn't want you moving around. Don't be chasing after that spirit thing. Oh, man, this is so basically he's trying to find a way to lock people in there at the orchard and not give them any ability to leave on biblical grounds.
7: And so I guess what I want to do is challenge some of you with this who have found yourselves in that place. You know, and, and you've you've maybe you've come from another church, and maybe this is like the ninth church you've been at in three or four years. I, I want to challenge you to embrace a community of faith, and and you know what? Dive in, okay. Find a church whose values you can embrace, whose mission, uh, vision, and all of that, whether that's here or mission, vision, and values you can embrace. I can only embrace a church with,
1: that has the same mission that Christ has commanded the church to have, not some willy-nilly spirit-led, stick-your-ear-to-the-ground kind of spirit vision thing that a seeker-driven
7: leader thinks came from God. Or somewhere else, but find that place and dive in and commit yourself and, and commit yourself to a level that goes way beyond all the surfacey stuff. And, and, and then in those moments when your commitment is challenged for whatever reason outside of, you know, spiritual abuse, weird, you know, things. That, just some sometimes crazy things that happen, and you should run, you know, in those times. But But, but I'm talking about, like, just... Preference stuff, right? I want to challenge you in those moments, dive in deep, stick with it, commit yourself, and work through those challenges. Be willing to have the tough... Now remember,
1: how many passages of Scripture he preaches from on any given Sunday, that's just a matter of personal preference, according to Scott.
7: Conversations, be willing to remind yourself that it is not all about you, it is not all about your preferences or what you want, it is about something much much greater and something much, much deeper. Now, later this fall, we're going to um, introduce to our community what's called partnership class uh, because, uh, you know, we, we, for a long time, we just decided not to do membership because we felt like, you know, let's just, uh, you know, if you dig this place, you're in right? But what we begin to realize is there are a lot of people who really want to feel more a part of something and, and want to make a deeper type of commitment. And so this fall, we're going to launch what's called partnership class. We're not calling it membership class because membership is what you have at the health club and we're not a health club. Okay. This is a, this is all of ours, right? I mean, this is not Scotch church. Let me say it again. Here comes the preach. This is not Scott's church. This is not the staff's church. This is our community, right? And so later this fall, we're going to... I thought the church was
1: Christ's body. That's what Scripture says. It's not our community or your church. It's the body of Christ. Notice where the possession belongs. It's ours rather than his,
7: Jesus's. Going to give you an opportunity to learn how you can move away from just being a spectator or a consumer and how you can actually help take ownership of this place. And some of you, you'll go through that and you'll go, man, that was so clear that I realized maybe this place isn't for me. If we do a great job at that, then some of you will probably figure that out. And, and that's fine. Uh, others of you, you're going to have more buy into this place than you ever had before. And, and so I think it's going to be a real important thing for us and a great step for, for many of you to take. Now... Let's keep, let's, I got one more. The last, the last commitment that these Benedictine monks make. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, we thought this was about Jiro. Well, now it's not. We changed it, okay? Now we're talking about monks, all right? But it's still like, anyway. Um, so here, here's the last one, all right? It's called conversion. It's a commitment to conversion. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, that conversion, because we're all, we're in church, we're thinking like, converting people to the faith. That's not what this is talking about. What this is talking about, so Jiro is a great example. There, I brought him back in. Jiro is a guy who has made it to the top of his game, yet he is extremely open and willing to embrace the new. That is what conversion is about. It is a commitment to continual growth and continual change in our lives. Okay, it's a commitment to continue taking risks. I don't care if you're 60, 90, 15 years old. I don't care. This is about you are committed to saying, I'm going to embrace change. I'm going to allow the Spirit to take me and to stretch.
1: Rather than trust in Christ, grasp hold of your salvation, take off the old man, clothe yourself in the new, you're supposed to embrace change. Where in the Bible can I find a passage of
7: Scripture that tells me the importance, as a Christian, to embrace change? ...me and to, even if necessary, completely mess me up. And that also means that at times I'm going to stumble and I'm going to fall, but then I'm going to get back up again. I'm going to embrace the new, and I'm going I'm to stay flexible while at the same time being deeply committed in my life. Listen, can I tell you one of the most beautiful pictures of this anywhere is, is the picture we get in the scriptures of the early church. I mean, look, I don't think we realize how crazy some of this stuff was. I mean, when you read Acts, oh my gosh. I mean, look, you have a group of people who are... Think about this. You've got a group of people who are totally committed to their faith, to God, the law, the Hebrew scriptures, and then everything gets completely jacked up by this man named Jesus. Right, and Jesus shows up in the most unconventional way, of course, and, and starts talking about things these people never heard of before. Kingdom of God, this new kingdom, and, and all these things they never heard about. And and they're going, What the heck? This is this is totally weird. And and but there's something about it that seems right, right? There's something about it that seems good, and so they start to embrace it. They start... What
1: are what are you referring to? It doesn't sound like anything in the book of Acts. Why don't you open up, a pa- open up that Bible of yours that's collecting dust and see if we can find out what you're talking about from you actually reading through and preaching through a text. I'm not familiar with this portion of Scripture that you're supposedly referring to.
7: Start accepting it, and then it's like they swallowed the pill on the matrix, right? And all of a sudden it's like one thing leads to another, and like the further they get down this thing, the more they begin seeing that, hold on, holy smokes, wait a minute. This thing is way bigger than just about us. And what they begin to understand, whether they like it or not, what they begin to understand is that this message of Jesus isn't just for them. It's for everyone. Everyone. Whoa. And so now, people who were excluded are now included. Hmm. So what do you do with that? Sounds
1: to me like you've been reading the Emergent Liberals. <sighs>
7: you get into tension and you and you wrestle i mean you these are jewish followers of a jewish messiah who live a jewish life in a jewish jewish nation all right jewish people who are who are circumcised who eat kosher foods, who recite Jewish prayers and go to Jewish festivals. And all of a sudden, you got a bunch of non-Jewish people showing up, going, uh, hey, hey, we want in on this. And these are people who don't go, you know, who are not circumcised, who don't eat kosher, who don't dress or talk or live like Jews. And so what do you do? Well, you kind of go, holy crap, like, what do you do with that? We better figure this out. I mean, do you start expecting the non-Jews to start living like Jews? Imagine that. Well, hey, hey, congratulations on your decision to follow Jesus. Now, as a part of your uh, initiation, we're going to need to perform a minor surgery on all the men. Okay? We call that class 101. Ooh, hey, uh, I, you know what? Buddhism actually sounds a little more appealing to me right now. I mean, because at least that's all about peace. Whew, right? <laughs> So what do you do with that? Of course they're not
1: going to do that, right? So what do they do? You'll notice that this is not even approaching a meaningful discussion of what the Bible teaches regarding the distinction between Jew and Gentile and how there's a new covenant in Christianity, and there's now a different way, there's a way for us as Christians to properly understand law and gospel. Yeah, this is no meaningful discussion of it at all. This is more like a stand-up comedy routine without a point.
7: Well, you know what they do? They stay deeply committed to the faith, but they, but they also start wrestling with some really big questions. And, and they end up forming this committee of people and, and who go in and they, they start to think about, talk through it, what do we do? And, and when they finally come to this decision, you know what they do? They walk out of the building and they, they don't say, well, you know, thus saith the Lord God Jehovah on high, uh, we have a declaration. You know what they say? They say, well, it seems to us that this is what ought to happen. What? It seems. Like, wait a minute, are we even allowed to decide some of these things, right? You know what they were doing? They were wrestling. They were. Re-
1: and the weird thing is, is that's actually in the written word of God. Notice he's undermining the authority of
7: scripture here. Wrestling and asking a huge question. What does it mean to follow Jesus at that time and in that place? And that is a question that the church largely has stopped wrestling with. And that's why you have so many people who dislike the church and want nothing to do with the church. Because we've stopped wrestling. We've stopped asking that question. What you have, look, what you have in the early church is a group of people who were deeply committed to the faith, and they, and they, and they were deeply committed at the same time to opening their hearts and being extremely flexible and wrestling in the midst of tension and, 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 and doing their best to go where the whole... If that's what they were really doing, how come there's no passage of
1: Scripture that actually points out that that's what they were doing?
7: Holy Spirit was taking... This whole thing, which was way beyond their control, maybe that's spiritual maturity, right We like to make spiritual maturity about all these other things, how much you know we like to make it about all the externals, right how much Bible you read or how much how much you know how great you you pray or how I don't know how often you go to church or whatever we if I do all so Bible reading and prayer
1: nah that not that important when it comes to spiritual maturity. anyone buying that?
7: All these things, God will pat me on the back and feel better about me. And, and, and see, those, see, the problem is behavior is easy. What's not easy is letting God do the deep work internally. Right? It's easy to worship Jesus. It is not always easy to follow Jesus. You know, I, I think maybe spiritual maturity is all about this, man. It's about learning to live in the midst of this tension. And it's on one hand you know, having a, a stable commitment, and yet at the same time having a very open heart. And being very open to whatever the spirit is saying. Look at the very beginning of this talk, uh, this series, I should say, several weeks ago. We talked about how, when you look beneath the surface of the stories in these films, what you end up finding is an even greater story. And and I think I think today. The story that we find ourselves facing, the story that we have to go home with today, is a story that I think goes way beyond just a sushi chef in Tokyo or a group of Benedictine monks. Okay, I think the story that you and I have in front of us, and that we have the op- the opportunity of embracing, is a story of a group of people, a community of people who are willing to dive in. Listen, who are willing to dive in, and who are willing to embrace the tension that comes with being people who are committed to. On one hand, listening. God, where do you want to take us? Where do you want to take me? And a group of people who are committed to one another in this journey of community, come hell or high water, we are committed to one another. And then, yet, people who at the same time are committed to being extremely flexible and, and open and willing to wrestle through some really difficult questions.
1: And yet he's not telling us about Jesus, the one who, although he was by nature very God, did not consider equality with God something to be gras- grasped, but instead became a servant and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, became man and was obedient to death, even death on a cross for our sins and for our salvation. You know, we're not hearing that story.
7: Of what does it mean to follow Jesus at this time and in this place today? Here's the image. Bamboo. Bamboo, man. Listen, you know what? You know what's awesome about bamboo? And, man, maybe for those visual people, just go home thinking about bamboo, okay? Listen, bamboo, very solid wood right if you've ever like held a piece of bamboo like the body of bamboo is very hard and firm and yet if you've ever been in a place like a forest filled with bamboo and i have and i'll tell you like what you see you know what you see you see this movement right you see you see a swaying happen with even just the slightest breeze the trunks firmly rooted right deep in the ground but yet, at the same time, this extreme amount of flexibility. And uh, you know why there's a flexibility? Well, when you, if you were to saw open or open up, uh, like you're just going to do that, right? But if you were to look inside of bamboo, you know what you find? Is you find that it is empty. And I, I think that is a huge piece of us really living as mature Christians, is emptying ourselves every single day and saying, you know what? Not my will but yours be done. It's about surrender. It's about letting go. It's about saying, you know what? I'm going to take up my cross daily. And it's not going to today, it's not going to be about Scott. It's going to be God about what you want. And I, so I think maybe the best thing we can do is pray and ask God to just open us up and, and, and uh, to a life that is surrendered. And so three questions I want to leave you with. Here they are. Obedience, the question is this, am I, op- uh, am I, put them up, am I listening?
1: Not, am I, am I reading God's word? Am I listening, supposedly, for the spirit, you know, out there, speaking through the ground and things?
7: Stability, am I committed? And then, and then the last one, conversion, am I open? So what if you just took those three questions? If you don't have a pen, maybe just take your phone and take a picture of those. And take them home and chew on them this week and see where that leads you. Because here's what I trust. My, my goal isn't to stand up here. Yeah, if I was
1: at that church and those were the three questions I was left with after listening to this, <clears throat> the Spirit would be leading me to a different church.
7: And convince you of anything, all right? It's too much pressure. I can't do that. All I can do is say what's on my heart and trust the Spirit to work. So take those. And my guess is if you're anything like me, the answers to those questions, you'll find that there is a lot of room to open up. There's a lot of room to open up and surrender and let God expand you in. And so to close, I'd like us just to take a moment with these questions in mind and just bow our heads together and let's together ask God to give us the courage and the grace to do that. Would you bow your heads with me?
1: No, absolutely not. What a debacle. That was horrifying. That was completely vapid, shallow, empty, Two verses? Out of context? It's it? And uh, <clears throat> all law. No gospel. That wasn't Christian preaching. That wasn't biblical preaching. That message wasn't teaching me anything that God really wants me to know, believe, or do. That was something completely different. False gospel, false message, false center. And, and supposedly it's all about... Well, finding and listening and obeying what God is speaking in the wind or in the earth or whatever, and getting busy doing it so that you can achieve your purpose through stability and conversion, whatever those things mean, yeah, none of it based on scripture this is not this that was not a Christian sermon at all. What did you think? <laughs> If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.